From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, looking at the events impacting business and politics. I'm your host, Tucker Warren. Today, I'm joined by Ian Jeffries, President and CEO of the Association of American Railroads. Ian is here to talk about America's freight rail industry and an important milestone for the industry this week. Ian, welcome. Thanks for having me, Tucker. Looking forward to getting into the conversation today. So it's a big week for freight rail. Uh, Why is that? So today is the 40th anniversary of the Staggers Act, which to put it I suppose in one sentence, um, you know, partially deregulated the railroad from a a crippling economic regulatory structure to one that allowed railroads to to really start acting uh, like other businesses and operating in in markets and unleashed, as of today, 40 years of uh, a thriving industry that has, um, has invested colossal amounts back into its network, um, improved safety, improved service, um, improved efficiency, and really resulted in a freight rail system that is undeniably the envy of the rest of the world. So I always think of America as a, as a country that loves its trains, uh, a rich history of, of trains moving people and, and goods across the country. But what, why don't you give us an overview of the freight rail industry at large, how you think about it? Sure, and I, I would second your your uh, your thinking of you know railroads being being a part of the American spirit. I would say my my dad was a train enthusiast, my grandfather was a train enthusiast, uh, my great grandfather actually worked for the Southern Railroad. So you know to some extent, rail's been around my life and certainly part of my family history. But the the rail industry that we have today is it's you know it's coast to coast. It's a 140,000 mile network of privately owned freight railroads. And that is predominantly um, seven large class one railroads, which is the largest of uh, the railroads out there, but also includes hundreds of what are called short line railroads. So think of uh, small business railroads that connect into the bigger guys. And every day across the country, any type of good you can think of is likely on a railroad. So whether it's automobiles, whether it's grain, whether it's uh, various chemicals that we use for all sorts of uh, uh, our daily lives, whether it's consumer goods, whether it's foodstuffs, you know, you could go on and on, but anything we're interacting with um, on a day-to-day basis has probably uh, been impacted by rail in some way, shape, or form. So it's truly woven into the fabric of uh, our lives in America and the, the overall economy. Can you put the, the impact uh, and, and the role that the industry plays on the economy into context? How, how big are we talking about? We're, we're certainly all accustomed to receiving an awful lot of packages these days, particularly in, in pandemic times. It sounds right. like the, the rail industry plays an important role in, in all of those things, getting to people when they need it. Right. So we're talking about tens of thousands of carloads of um, when, when you're talking about e-commerce, just for one example, tens of thousands of carloads of what's called intermodal goods. So, so what are intermodal goods? Those are goods that move in containers. So think about what comes off of uh, the big ships coming into the ports, may go on a truck for a little while, but uh, ends up on a railroad, maybe goes back on a truck. Tens of thousands of those containers are moving across the country every single day. And again, that's a lot of your consumer staples. And when we look at impact on the economy, we're really looking at an impact of about 
2.1 million jobs out there, uh, direct and indirect, and literally several hundred billion dollars of economic impact um, supporting the country. So we certainly, uh, we're, we leave our mark as an industry. So you've been working in transportation for a long time, uh, and you, you've been at the association for seven years. What's something about the freight rail industry that you have found in conversation that, that people are surprised by, that they don't know? Maybe, a, maybe an antiquated view of the industry. What, what surprises people? So a few different things come to mind. One, I think a lot of uh, your, your everyday folks think of railroad and they immediately think of passenger rail, which passenger rail obviously plays a, a role in this country and certainly a, a, a bigger role in certain parts of the country, for example, in the Northeast, um, on the Northeast corridor. But I realized a lot of people, you know, freight rail never really enters people's minds. Now, why is that? It's because freight rail is kind of a quiet actor in the background. Um, you know, we keep our heads down as an industry. We're moving goods across the country. We're, we're putting them into city centers and um, other, other localities. But so, so, so that immediately came to mind. Um, I'll, I'll also say that by and large, I think there are a lot of folks who don't realize that, that our freight rail system is, you know, fully privately owned and invested. Um, they, you know, they, they don't really realize that it's, it's a wholly different animal than, for example, the interstate highway system, where that is a publicly funded, publicly subsidized uh, infrastructure network. Well, freight railroads, it's all private money, private dollars going back into the system, supported by the revenues that railroads earn, which, you know, to, to get back to the Staggers Act, really is a product of staggers that allowed railroads to, to differentially price, to compete in markets and charge market rates, which allowed them to reduce their costs, earn the revenues necessary to invest back into their networks. And that's what railroads do every day. We're talking about $25 billion a year in annual private investments back into the network. And that's something that really drew me to the industry and really makes me proud to work for the industry is that we're, we're largely self-sufficient. So when you hear about infrastructure week or we've got to invest in the nation's infrastructure, railroads are doing that every day, day in and day out. Almost half a million dollars, excuse me, almost half a billion dollars a day, private investment back into the network. So those are a couple of things, you know, first, they don't think of freight automatically. And second, when we do talk about freight, that realization that, hey, we're doing this all on our own dime isn't necessarily uh, apparent and prevalent. And I do everything I can day in and day out to, uh, to make that known to everybody who will listen. So we're having this conversation on the 40th anniversary of the Staggers Act, but take us back 40 years ago. Why was Staggers necessary? What did, what did the industry look like 40 plus years ago? If you take a snapshot of the industry prior to the implementation of Staggers, we're looking at a rail industry that was nearly 25% in bankruptcy, where this concept of a standing derailment, and that's exactly what it sounds like, a, a, a car or an engine standing on the tracks falls over because the track can't withstand the, the weight under it because it's in such a decrepit condition. That was something that was not outside of occurrence. And so why was this? Well, it was because the railroads had to operate under a, a federal regulatory structure where the government set the rates they could charge for various customers, required that they operate on routes, whether they were profitable or viable or not, and really strangled the ability of the industry to rationalize itself and, and innovate. So what Staggers did is it really 
freed up railroads to, to operate in markets, to compete, to charge competitive rates, to enter into private contracts, to shed lines that um, didn't make sense for them to operate on, which really gave birth to the, the short line industry that I mentioned earlier. But the result was railroads started earning the revenues they needed to invest back into their systems. Rail rates dropped because they weren't uh, subject to um, um, federal um, price setting requirements. So the customer is paying less. Railroads are operating more efficiently. They're earning revenues necessary to plug back into their systems to bring their, their infrastructure into a strong state and really unleashed what we're talking about over the past 40 years is this golden age of, of uh, rail renaissance. And what has that meant for everyday customers, not necessarily the shippers that use freight rail to move the goods that they're making around the country, but how does that ultimately connect back to the consumer? Right. So if you're talking about benefit to consumer, you've got to start with the benefit to the customer. So rail rates today, writ large, are 42% lower than where they were in 1980 when adjusted for inflation. So when prices get lower for the, the customer, the shipper, those savings get passed on in part to the, to the end consumer. And because of those lower rail rates, we estimate that about $10 billion of savings is accrued by the U.S. consumer every year as an outlet of you know, the factors that, that grew out of uh, the Staggers Act. So you can draw that line of benefiting the railroads because they can invest and, and be viable operations, the shipper who's moving goods more efficiently at a cheaper rate, and the end consumer who's benefiting from all those savings of efficiency and, and reduced cost. You mentioned investment and you described a picture 40 years ago of, of the state of rail infrastructure being in a, in a, in a dark place. Um, what kind of investment have we seen over the last 40 years by, by uh, freight rail industry? Cumulatively, looking back, we're talking about $710 billion of private capital back into the U.S. rail network since 1980. And I, I flagged that $25 billion a year number and it goes up and down a little, but averaging out about that rate. So again, we're talking about $500 million a day almost of private investment back into the networks. And that's, that goes to all number of things. It goes to keeping the infrastructure that exists in healthy shape. It goes to capital expansion. It goes to technology development. It goes to really modernizing the railroads and um, you know, creating a product and a um, a, a, an option for a shipper that is, you know, as competitive as it's ever been, the safest it's ever been. And again, doing it all on the private side without government funding. We're, we're having this conversation in Washington, D.C., which of course means there are, are policymakers and regulators uh, around us every day that, that we're all working with. What has the Staggers Act meant for the industry in how it works with regulators? You described an environment of kind of a, a deregulated environment or an environment maybe that has a different kind of regulation, right. help us appreciate what, what that relationship now looks like in a way that was different 40 years ago. Sure. So people use the term deregulation when they talk about staggers, but I, I noticed you caught yourself. It, it, it is a different regulatory environment. So staggers certainly partially deregulated, but there is still a regulatory structure that governs how railroads can operate. And at, at, a, at a high level, it says, okay, where there's competitions, railroads compete and, and fight for, for, for market share and for customers, but where there is not sufficient competition, 
then there is a role for the federal government to step in and ensure that rates railroads charge are reasonable to their customers. And that's governed by an agency called the Surface Transportation Board. And so the board is, is responsible for adjudicating rate disputes, but we consistently, we being the rail industry, advocate to not only Congress, but to the Surface Transportation Board that at its core, it is critical that we adhere to this this balanced economic regulatory structure that has allowed railroads to thrive so much. Because as you might imagine, you know, there's an inherent tension between, between the customer and the, the service provider, railroads and, and their shippers. And, you know, there, might, there, there are disagreements from time to time about what the appropriate regulatory balance is. And there are, there are some groups that consistently push to, to, to exact power over rail rate making outside of what the current regulatory regulatory structure allows. And so it's critical on, on the AAR and the rail industry to, to effectively advocate and demonstrate the value of the system we have and really showing what's at risk here. And I'm, I'm proud to say that, that Congress has consistently revalidated uh, the structure in place and the Surface Transportation Board, while it has and um, still does have a few, a few concerning proposals in front of it, by and large, when they take a look at the facts and the data, they come down with a, an understanding that the system we have largely works today. It sounds like you might say that Staggers is a, in some ways a model of balanced, smart regulation that unleashes competition, but it doesn't completely remove regulators' hand from the wheel. Um, would you agree with that? And then I mean, what, what lessons can you draw from Staggers more broadly about economic regulation that could be applied to other industries? So not only might I say that, I do say that. So, you know, that was very <laughs> well put. Uh, you know, it, it is amazing in this, this world of, you know, kind of toxic partisanship that we're engulfed in these days. Staggers was a bipartisan piece of legislation. And it was, you know, both sides coming together, recognizing that, you know, there is a sweet spot of uh, regulatory oversight that the federal government can play. And when you go too far in, the, in the, the regulatory interventionist federal paradigm that we operated in prior to 1980, then, you know, there, there are catastrophic consequences for the vibrancy and health of an industry. You can choke that industry off. When you strike the right balance, which is, okay, let's let the market work, but if there are market failures, we need a regulatory backstop to ensure that um, that competition, you know, is healthy and that um, that 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 anybody who, who feels that maybe they're they're being treated unfairly has a as an outlet for dispute resolution. So so we've got that here, and it, it absolutely is a model piece of legislation that um, that can be applied across what I would say you know other network industries. And and let's remember. In the same period of time, we saw deregulation in the trucking industry, deregulation in the airline industry. So there was a theme um, in the late 70s, you know, 1980s time period. And uh, who ever thought Jimmy Carter was a great deregulator? But, uh, you know, it appears <laughs> history shows that he was. Oftentimes when, when legislation has been around for 40 years, uh, policymakers may find themselves wanting to tinker with it. It sounds like it's it's a pretty good model, but are there changes or revisions to staggers that, that are being contemplated or have been recently contemplated that, 
that you're concerned about or, or ones that you're excited about and think, um, think in fact, are, are good evolutions of the Staggers Act? Well, as you mentioned, you know, 40 years is a long time, and a lot of uh, the folks working on Capitol Hill or working in agencies probably were not uh, in those roles 40 years ago. So it's incumbent upon us to consistently re-educate and remind uh, policymakers and, and regulators of, of the, the continued value and um, relevance of, of staggers. I will say that, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier, that you know, there, there have been efforts to, to take us backwards towards that pre-Staggers uh, era um, on the legislative front, and every time Congress, Congress has wisely rejected uh, such efforts. But, you know, the, the, the Surface Transportation Board, again, our economic regulator, was con- uh, reauthorized through legislation in 2015, and in our opinion, was reauthorized in the proper fashion. The, the goals of the reauthorization were, let's figure out, you know, if there are ways to make the agency uh, work more efficiently to make you know the, the the rate case process work more efficiently for both sides. So there's always reason to take a look at how you're doing things. But the Staggers Act really revolves around one key point of enabling railroads to earn the revenues necessary to meet today, today's demands and demands into the future. And so as long as you're operating under that key critical policy point, then we should be in a pretty good shape. When we start to stray from that or start to tinker too much, then you start to get yourself in trouble. But fortunately, um, um, logic and data-driven minds have prevailed here over the past 40 years. I wanna talk a little bit about the future of the freight rail industry. What are the biggest challenges for the industry as you see them in the coming years? Well, I always say that today's railroad is not your grandfather's railroad and tomorrow's railroad is certainly not today's railroad. So railroads continue to evolve over time as, as any healthy industry does. We've gone from you know, steam locomotives with five uh, crew members on board to today's uh, diesel low emission locomotives that have two crew members on board. And as I said, we're in the, the safest era of railroading and that's due to not only sustained investment but it's due to uh, strong safety cultures. It's due to deployment of technologies that allow us to do better detections and awareness of the health of our systems. And so I only see that continuing to evolve down the line. Railroads will continue to deploy technology to take safety to higher and higher heights. And with that, take uh, efficiencies to higher and higher heights, which will only make them more competitive um, I, I would add that you know we're, 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 there's a lot of time, a, a lot of energy going into addressing uh, environmental concerns and other macro level concerns right now. And railroads have the opportunity to play a huge part of the solution. So when you're pulling trucks off the road, you're pulling um, traffic off the road onto the railroads, you're instantly reducing emissions, you're instantly reducing congestion, you're instantly reducing wear and tear on the nation's highway system. And so that's three different ways we're helping policymakers right there, just by moving goods by rail. So we'll continue to do everything we can to, to, to make rail the most viable option of moving goods and uh, doing it as safely as possible and as efficiently as possible. How has freight rail adapted to uh, recent demand for goods? Uh, you know, looking at the rise of e-commerce, everyone orders something today and expects that it's going to be on their doorstep tomorrow. Um, you know, not 100% of that, of course, moves by rail, at least, uh, at least not yet. But 
Um, but you know, how has the freight rail industry evolved to meet those kinds of demands? The, the investments railroads have made over the years and continually updating how railroads are, are run, their operating plans, has really resulted in, in a nimble industry that can, can shift on a dime and has made it that much more competitive in just-in-time delivery products such as e-commerce. Now, you're right, of course, some of it's going to move uh, via other modes. Um, but on, on the longer haul um, types of shipments, railroads are a very viable player now. And that's, that's demonstrated through, while it's been a really challenging year um, on rail, in rail traffic uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the bright spots is the, the immense growth uh, in intermodal traffic. Year over year, intermodal is doing very strong right now, and it's really come roaring back here in the past quarter. And a lot of that is due to the uptick in e-commerce. So railroads, um, you know, will absolutely play a role in the continued growth of e-commerce and are, are, are taking a lot of strides to make sure they can continue to be viable movers of, of this intermodal traffic. You mentioned COVID and I, I certainly wanted to touch on that. This has been a, a challenging year for a number of industries. Um, how has the freight rail industry managed through COVID and the resulting economic crisis that the country is, is still, still in? So COVID has been immensely challenging for, for the country writ large. And, you know, I certainly can't look past the fact that, you know, every day, as you mentioned, this, this, this um, virus continues to, uh, to, to leave, you know, a, a huge mark on all aspects of our country. Uh, railroads were, were not spared with that. We, we were knocked off about 30% um, traffic level wise uh, earlier in the year. Um, fortunately, you know, not as bad as some of our, our peer industries, but still a pretty big dent. Rail traffic has um, come back to a, a decent level. We're, we're, we're not exactly where we want to be yet, but um, when you look at the fact that most finished autos move by rail, well, when all the auto plants shut down, you're not moving many autos. The auto plants are back up and humming and running, so we're moving a lot of autos again. We're moving a lot of grain products again. As I mentioned, we're moving massive amounts of container traffic and intermodal traffic. So rail traffic is, is coming back. But I will tell you, the re one of the things that makes me most proud is that, is that rail did not need to go to Capitol Hill looking for any sort of direct bailout or funding. And why is that? Well, let's draw that line back to staggers again. It's because our infrastructure is in the best shape it's been, ever been. We're well-capitalized companies and we're built for the long term. It's the same reason railroads are often the first back up and running after natural disasters, after hurricanes, because we're a resilient industry that is invested for the long term, is built for the long term. So we'll, we'll ride this out. We'll be OK. And um, we'll continue to deliver for America as we have been. So we've got a presidential election that's just three weeks away. Um, you know, without getting into the details of either candidate's plans for infrastructure investment, we don't have enough time for that. But... But more generally, as, as you think about 2021 and beyond, what has you the most excited about the future of the industry? Well, one thing that, that has me excited, excited about the future is we're ready to work with whoever ends up winning in the elections. Uh, railroads are, are generally a, a fairly bipartisan industry. We've got a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle and certainly a lot of issues we agree upon with folks on both sides of the aisle. We also have challenges, policy challenges, like any industry does. So I'm, I'm optimistic that I know we're prepared to work with whomever is in the White House or whoever is controlling either House of Congress. 
Uh, we've got a demonstrated track record of doing that, and we'll continue to do that uh, moving forward. When we look at the, 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 the more micro-level policy side of things, both sides have indicated an interest uh, to do some infrastructure legislation. And as I've said, we're, we're privately owned, privately operated, but we believe that infrastructure investment needs to happen in this country. We need a healthy, integrated infrastructure network. We can debate over how we think that should be funded. As I've mentioned, railroads are privately funded. Mentioned that a few times during our conversation. So we believe, for example, the highway system needs to be funded by, by a user pay system as it originally was envisioned. We've gotten a bit away from that. But the bottom line is we think there's, there's a need for infrastructure investment. It needs to be done the right way. And we really need to be embracing technology on the policy side because we're only going to have more freight to move. And when, you wanna, when, when you're looking for, for ways to increase capacity, technology is going to play a role. Um, technology is going to play a role in, in advancing safety beyond where we are now. And so I'm really optimistic. There are huge opportunities uh, to work with policymakers from either side. When you're looking at addressing environmental concerns, as I mentioned, I think rail can play a huge part of the solution. So I feel like we have a lot to offer policymakers on a lot of different issues, regardless of what your ideology is. And uh, so I look forward to working with whomever we have the opportunity to work with. Okay, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of HPS Insights. A special thanks to our guest today, AAR's Ian Jeffries. You can learn more about the freight rail industry at www.aar.org. And you can find out more about Hamilton Place Strategies' work and our podcasts at www.hamiltonplacestrategies.com or by following us on Twitter at, at HPS Insights. I'm your host, Tucker Warren. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight and visit us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.